When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived for 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan for 815 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived for 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel for 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived for 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared for 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived for 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch for 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived for 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech for 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived for 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah for 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. 
the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favour in the eyes of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, please do keep um, page four open in your church Bibles. That will help, I think, as we go through. Uh, And there's an outline on the server sheets. Uh, We're back in Genesis, working our way through. Last week, we had a topical talk on uh, men and women, according to Genesis 1 to 4. Um, And if you've got questions from that, please do put them in the box at the back um, for the 18th of June question time, or or come and grab me. I'd really love to chat um, if you have any questions off the back of that. Um, but tonight we're back, we're back working our way through, um, and I wonder what your first thought was when you heard that reading. Probably something like, I'm glad they didn't ask me to read this week. <laughs> it's a lot of names, isn't it? Maybe some of us thought, oh, it's going to be a dull one tonight. I'm pleased to report, God's word is never dull. We sometimes make it that way, but, but it isn't in itself. This passage has two profound truths about humanity that could not be more relevant, personally, to every single person on the planet. If we want to understand ourselves, if we want to understand others, understand the world we live in, well, Genesis has answers. Family trees are a really big deal in this book, for good reason. I'll explain the reasons later, but let me pray for God's help. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this amazing book of Genesis. Please help me tonight not to get in the way of it, to make it sound boring, but to be faithful to what you're saying and help all of us to listen and to trust what you say. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I don't know if you're into family trees. Uh, Some people love them, don't they? they? They kind of find them fascinating, spend huge energy kind of trying to trace back Am I some long-distance relation to Robert the Bruce or William Wallace or Mel Gibson or whatever it is? Others are less interested. I don't really care where I came from. What matters is who I am right now. But I think one of the things Genesis is showing us again and again is the best way to understand the world we live in now and the people we are now is to actually go back to the beginning and discover where we came from. We have this phrase, don't we? Like father, like son, or like mother, like daughter. We have the phrase for a reason. I'm often being told how much my son Josh looks like me. I think it's the chubby cheeks. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a compliment for me, but uh, in lots of ways tonight, we're going to see how each generation of humanity have so much in common with the generation before them and before them all the way back to the beginning, not just in our looks, but much more significant, serious ways. 
before we get into that, let's just remind ourselves where we've come from. There's a little box on the handout. We've had kind of two major episodes, uh, two chapters, if you like, of Genesis. And the actual chapter numbers that are in our Bibles were just added later, uh, way after the Bible was written. So don't worry too much about those numbers, They're just to help us navigate. But the actual chapter headings of Genesis that were originally written in there, well, they're marked by the phrase, uh, these are the generations of, or in chapter 5, verse 1, the start of this new episode, episode 3 of human history, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Those are the kind of titles in Genesis. They, they act uh, as a kind of title for what comes next. And what comes next is a family tree. We're following through a family tree through the book, uh, continuing on from the person who gets mentioned. So in this case, Adam. Now, interestingly, the family trees, they're not comprehensive. They don't mention every single child born. Did you notice that? They had other sons and daughters. Don't learn their names. Which is to say, this is not dry and dusty record-keeping. There's a clear meaning. There's a deliberate tracing of a particular line. Genesis wants us to notice something that's happening. What is happening? Well, chapter 5 is going to give us one point, and chapters 6, 1 to 8, is going to give us a second point. Both of those points are about things that were true of Adam and Eve now being true of everyone. So Adam and Eve surely died or would die because they'd rebelled against God, the creator of life. And what was true of them is true of everyone now. Everyone will die universally. Everyone rebels against God universally, like father, like son. Those are our two points, and they are sobering. Tonight is going to be a sober night, although not without hope, so please stick with me. But here's point one. Humanity is fruitful, multiplying, and universally mortal. That's the important bit. Universally mortal. Point one is, to, is about the death of humanity. To put it another way, the single biggest thing we're learning about the human family tree is that every branch is dying. Every branch is dying on the human family tree. We heard that as you went through the reading, didn't you? Between the names, after the names, and he died, and he died, and he died. It's a striking refrain because the start of the chapter actually reminds us of lots of the joy and wonder of of chapter 1 of Genesis. And we get a quick recap in verses 1 and 2, proving that recaps are a good idea. Um, Verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam, When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's chapter 1. Male and female, he created them. Chapter 1. He blessed them. Chapter 1. Named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So a great recap of what we've had so far. Humanity created by God in God's image, male and female, blessed by God. And wonderfully, verse 3, that dignity of being made in God's image is actually passed on down the generations. Did you notice that? Adam fathered a son in his own likeness after his image. What image? Well, the image of God that Adam and Eve were made in. So, so far, pretty good news, like father, like son, like mother, like daughter. 
And actually, verse 4, remember the the commission in uh, chapter 1 was to be fruitful and multiply. And here, verse 4, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Wonderful. That was the original plan. And then comes the hammer blow. Something that's so universal now that we don't even notice what a massive moment it is in the Bible story. The first death by natural, you might say, causes. See, so far we've just had one murder, Cain on Abel. But here, verse 5, thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. Maybe the second one in the chapter is even more sobering, though, because it turns out Seth, Adam's son, hasn't just inherited his dignity from Adam, image of God, not just his ability to be fruitful and multiply from Adam, like father, like son. No, he's picked up the mortality too. Verse 7. Seth lived Arti, father of Enosh, 870 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. Or verse 11. The days of Enosh, 905 years, and he died. The days of Kenan, and he died. Mahalahel. And he died. Jared. And he died. Now, of course, because we're used to shorter lifespans, when we hear that reading, we think, whoa, they lived a long time. (laughs) Lots of years. Now, we're going to see in chapter 6 that God decides to significantly limit human lifespans at the end of this episode. Uh, So no, no no wonder we're used to something shorter nowadays. But actually, from the Bible perspective, the striking thing of this family tree is not how long each branch is living. It's the fact that every branch is dying. It's not how it's supposed to be. And he died, and he died, and he died. It is a kind of unstoppable march. Humanity made for eternal life, made to live with the eternal God in his rest is now incapable of keeping going forever, is now aging, weakening, dying. Which, of course, is the world we know today, isn't it? All too well. It's such a universal truth and experience today, we almost try to kid ourselves that death is natural. It's just what happens. It's just moving on to the next room. Except it's not, is it? Human death is not a natural part of this world. It's a terrible consequence of how far wrong things have gone. And actually, deep down, intuitively, I think we know that. Conscious tonight, there will be people listening for whom this is a reality they are grappling with, or loved ones of theirs are facing. Why is it that much of the feeling of grief that we experience isn't just sadness, but anger. Of something being wrong, of, of it not supposed to be like this, of, of this deep loss of someone who should still be here. Because humans weren't created to die. The book of Ecclesiastes puts it like this, that we have eternity in our hearts. And yet we do die. Why? Why? Well, because of Genesis 3, 
the last episode, where as a race we rebelled against God, the creator, the giver of life. We thought we'd do better without him. And now that word of judgment hangs over us. From dust you came, to dust you will return. It's why so much of life seems to be rendered absurd by death. In many ways, the whole book of Ecclesiastes is a kind of meditation on the world after Genesis 3. And it's all futility once you factor in mortality. The wisdom, actually, of that book is to have the courage to say it. To say, what is the point of life when death is inevitably coming? All of our chasing of fame and reputation, when after we die, we'll be forgotten. All of our material accumulation, trying to pile up the wealth and the stuff, and then we die, and it all goes somewhere else. All of our construction and our projects, our beautifully planted gardens, but then we die. And who's going to tend it? What happens next? All of our learning, our education, just for aging and death to take it all away. Even our sense of justice, as victims have life cut short and bad people seem to get away with things in their lifetime. See, humanity may be fruitful and multiplying, but Genesis 5 says the big problem is death. It all ends there, rich or poor, man or woman, educated or not. You could be as famous as Harry Styles or Beyonce, or you could be totally unknown, and they died, and they died, and they died. It's every person we love. It's every person in the room. It's every person we pass on the street. They died. They died. I'm actually um, I'm having that unnerving time of life at the moment when all the people I looked up to as sports stars when I was a kid, sports stars, movie stars, powerful world leaders, all the people I looked up to as the kind of strong, the beautiful, the, the sporty, well, now they're becoming frail and infirm, a shadow of their former selves, marathon today, mortal tomorrow. See, it turns out when God warned Adam in the garden, if you eat of that tree that I've forbidden you, you will surely die. It was true. When the serpent, Satan, the fallen angel opposed to God, said, no, 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 you you won't surely die. Well, that was the lie. God has been proving his word true ever since. Universally, without discrimination or distinction, And he died. Actually, this is even more striking when we realize which branch of the human family tree we're following at this point in Genesis. You know how I said it doesn't list every name in the family. It's very zoomed in on a particular thread through the family tree. Well, in this case, we're not following every son of Adam. Um, So Cain, for example, we we heard a bit about his descendants in the last chapter in chapter 4. But we've kind of left them behind. We're now following the line of Seth. Now Seth, at the end of chapter 4, was the child provided by God after Abel had died. And Seth was the person, in 4 verse 26, who triggered a, a bit of a revival. After his arrival, people began calling on the name of the Lord. 
Or in other words, we are following the line of hope in chapter 5. This is the, 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 the branch of the family tree where there might be some hope, where God's promises might come through. Ever since Genesis 3, we've been on the lookout for uh, a child, uh, an offspring, a descendant of Eve, who will be a serpent crusher, someone who will be born as a human to get rid of evil in this creation. That actually is why the Bible cares about family trees. (laughs) That's the big one. That's why this book, Genesis, cares about family trees, because we are on the hunt for a serpent crusher, for a rescuer, someone who can save humanity from the evil we've got trapped by. Problem is, things are not going well in the hunt. The first two candidates, Cain and Abel, one became a murderer, killed the other. But Seth, having seen there was no serpent crushers there, Seth was the new hope. He's the new God-appointed offspring, new seed on the family tree. And we're following his line. We're thinking, well, here's the hope. A new branch on the tree. Maybe there will be the serpent crusher. Except even on that branch, we hear the refrain, and he died. And he died. In fact, we don't learn really anything else. More kids, and he died. More kids, and he died. Like father, like son, None of these offspring are able to undo the legacy of Grandpa Adam, the mark he left on the world, death itself. In fact, Romans 5 verse 17 sums up, I think, this chapter with these words. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. Reigned. Living in the kingdom of death. And we can't stop it, can we? Not ourselves. Humanity tries to fight it with healthy eating, fitness programs, medical advances. Humanity tries to hide it with nips and tucks, lotions, potions, makeup. Humanity tries to forget it, distracting ourselves, chasing amazing experiences or material accumulation or just trying to numb our minds with substances, drink or drugs. But the reality is It seems inevitable, unstoppable, universal. Except for one name on the list. Do you notice that? That's why there's an asterisk by the word universal. It's a kind of blink and you miss it moment as we go through the chapter. There's death after death, funeral after funeral, grief after grief. And then we meet Enoch. Verse 21, Enoch, who breaks the pattern Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. So far, so not samey. Then verse 22, Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. That's extraordinary. The phrase walked with God, it captures a living relationship with God, a relationship of faith. Hebrews 11 put it like that a few weeks ago. Enoch was living by faith and so pleased God. He trusted what God said. And extraordinarily, uniquely, Enoch doesn't die. You don't get the phrase, and he died. Instead, he was taken. Like Elijah, much later in the Bible, 
Enoch didn't get to heaven after dying in the grave. He, he was kind of given a direct transfer, taken straight there to life beyond. It's so remarkable. I mean, it, it stands out in this chapter, kind of takes a double take. We're expecting the refrain, and he died. It obviously stands out from human history. I mean, you don't get many people who just disappear. They're taken straight away. It actually stands out in the whole Bible story. There's Enoch and there's Elijah. That's it. But what it says to us, so early in the Bible, just at the moment where God is teaching the universality of death, what it teaches us is that there is still the possibility of hope. There is still actually a chance of life beyond the grave, of life knowing God, of life walking with God. Adam and Eve may have been kicked out of Eden and barred from the tree of life, but by faith it is still possible to know God and life eternal. Now here it's just a glimmer, a tiny little flicker of hope, just something you could blink and miss it. But as the Bible story unfolds, it becomes clearer and clearer that God does indeed have a plan to take his people to eternal life. The song we sang, um, Without Any Instruments, Psalm 16, that's one of the moments where it gets clearer. You will not let your Holy One see decay, life after the grave. And then when Jesus Christ comes along, as Hebrews has been teaching us, Jesus, who who didn't skip death like Enoch, but tasted it on our behalf, endured it on our behalf, taking the punishment we deserve so that we could have the life, the eternal life that he deserved. That's the hope of Genesis 5. Humanity may be universally mortal now, but with God, there is hope of a different end, a way to eternal life. That's our first point, first half of our passage. Um, But actually, this section that we're in isn't just about the universality of death. It's also about the universality of sin. Again, not a cheery subject, but one that will explain our world and ourselves, our own hearts. Um, I think this is important, actually, to realize, because so far, there might be a question kind of bubbling up in our minds that goes something like this. Okay, I I see what's happening. Like father, like son, all humans die now because Adam was sentenced to death. He's kind of passed that on. Adam sinned and now everyone dies. But isn't that a bit unfair? Are we being punished for his crime? Now, there's more than one answer to that in the Bible. Firstly, there's a very real sense that as our representative, as the head of the human race, Adam and Eve were representing all of us as they sinned. We're kind of chip off the old block. I think we don't really think like that in the individualistic West, um, unless we're supporting a sports team, and then bizarrely it all comes back. You know the language of, uh, we played well together, uh, played well today, we lost, we won, when of course we didn't kick a single ball, but we identify, they represent us. But in general in the West, we don't think in terms of families and tribes and lines and nations. We think in terms of me, I, individual me. The Bible, though, is much more corporate than that. So we were all represented 
in Adam and Eve. It was our family, our ancestors that sinned. That's the first reason. Actually, there's another reason why it is not unfair that each human being dies. And that's because every single human being sins. And not just the occasional rare slip-up. At a very deep, profound level, we are consistent sinners. That is to say, wickedness doesn't run through one or two bad apples in the human race, but the whole bunch. It's like a disease that runs through the core of every child of Adam. This is what point two is about. Chapter six, verses one to eight. Here's the point. Um, Don't worry about the start of it, but the, the back end is the important bit. Humanity is universally wicked. Universally wicked, facing universal judgment. Now again, the language at that point might at first sight feel a bit too strong, a bit too harsh. I mean, especially if you're just visiting church tonight, you're like, whoa, wasn't expecting to be told this. <laughs> but I'm just passing on God's assessment in verse 5 on humanity. <clears throat> the Lord saw that the wickedness of man, that is humanity, was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. God's verdict after Adam on humanity is great wickedness is on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart are only evil continually. That verse 5 is the kind of key point we need to grapple with here. We're going to come back to the question, is that actually accurate? Like, is that a fair description of me and my neighbours and my colleagues and everyone on the planet? Um, I think we often carry around questions like, isn't everyone a kind of mixture of good and bad? Or aren't we kind of good deep down, but we make some mistakes? Or isn't it outside influence that ends up corrupting people? And surely some people are kind to others, loving friends and families. There's, there's charity work, there's altruism. I mean, isn't that a real thing across society? We're going to come back to all of that. But before we do that, I, I do just have to address what's going on in verses 1 to 4, and which I have to say is quite confusing and hard to understand uh, quite what's going on. In verse 1, we've got echoes of creation again, um, humanity multiplying on the face of the land uh, Uh, being fruitful and multiplying just as God had intended in Genesis 1. But sadly, the good news ends there. Because what goes on in verse 2 is ugly. God's wonderful pattern for marriage of one woman and one man being united for life is now being further distorted. There are these sons of God, in verse 2, just grabbing whoever they fancy They took as their wives any they chose. That's a long way from the phrase used to describe Adam and Eve. Adam knew his wife. That relational focus to sexual union. Now it's they just grabbed. Now it's hard to know who the sons of God are actually referring to. I'll give you three brief options that people speak about. Some think it's spiritual beings. So fallen angels crossing the boundary God's put in place between different created beings. Certainly that phrase, sons of God, is used of angelic beings elsewhere in Scripture. That's option one. 
Others think it refers to early rulers in humanity. Sometimes a king is called the son of God. Uh, so, so kind of early rulers accumulating harems of women for themselves. So we've just seen Lamech in chapter 4, uh, the first man with two wives. Uh, taking is used of how he accumulates his family as well. And now these rulers, a whole group of rulers, grabbing whoever they chose. Still others have suggested a combination of spiritual and human. So demonically influenced rulers engaging in this horrible behavior. That's actually my preferred option at the moment. You can ask me why afterwards if you want. But actually the key point is the same, that sin is spreading. Now it's not just Adam and Eve taking the fruit. It's not just Cain taking a life. It's not just Lamech taking two wives and threatening them or taking the life of that young boy he killed. Actually, it's the sons of God, widespread, powerful people exploiting others, sexual exploitation of the vulnerable by the powerful. And that is our world. Still is. The language echoes, um, echoes Eve with the tree. She saw, saw that it was beautiful or good, and then she took. And that action has sent shockwaves, as Adam and Eve did that. Shockwaves through humanity and creation. Now humanity stop at nothing to take what they want. Taking life taking whomever they want, the sons of God. And so no wonder God is grieved to have creatures made in his image, to have the gift of sex, which he designed for men and women to relate to each other, different, but shared dignity, mutual complementarity, working together with shared dignity and respect to serve the Lord, Well, now it's become exploitation by the powerful against the vulnerable. And that is our world. That is the pornography industry. That is a lot of what's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. It's all over our streets. It's all over our media. I think when we see headlines of of the worst examples, kind of a horrible act of violence or a horrible revelation of exploitation, when we see it, I think we don't have the same conclusion that God has. Just look at God's verdict in verse 5. God doesn't say, there are a few monsters out there, a few bad apples. Now, God's verdict is that humanity across the board is universally wicked. Just look at verse 5 again. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now, this is not saying that everyone has done kind of the same kind of crimes. Everyone has done the same wicked actions. Notice what God is looking at. Actually, it's not actions. The Lord saw that every intention 
of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I think we are tempted to think, oh, hang on, steady on, steady on, God. I mean, surely the whole batch isn't that rotten. I think we should tread very carefully when we think we can tell God what right and wrong looks like, what good and evil actually involve, what justice would actually be. Partly, of course, because we are totally compromised, aren't we? We're not judging this from the bench, but in the dock. We're the ones being assessed. I mean, it would be convenient for those of us who lie quite regularly, as almost every human does when it's convenient. It'd be convenient for us to say lying isn't that serious. But God is too good for that. He's the God of truth. Again, it would be convenient for us to claim that the kind of essentially selfish outlook in life, the kind of looking after number one is where you start and then whatever's left over can go to other people. It would be convenient for us to say, well, that's just normal. That's, that's just the way the world works. But God is too good to agree with us on that. He says he made us to love others as much as ourselves. Most profoundly, I think, to people like us who consistently worship and trust and live for anything and everything except God, the creator who gave us life, it would be convenient, wouldn't it, for us to say, I mean, it's not that bad if I don't live every minute in service of God. I mean, if I pursue the gifts he's given rather than him as the ultimate end, I mean, it's not that bad. You can't call that wicked. God is too good to agree with us. His verdict is the wickedness of man was great in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. But hang on, hang on. Surely not every only continually. Surely not. I mean, surely human beings do some good things, don't we? We give to charity. We run marathons. We kind of raise money. We serve others in need. We help our families. You can't say every single action of humanity is only evil all the time continually, can you? Let's look again at what God actually says, verse 5. It's not the actions, it's the intentions he's looking at of the heart, what's going through our thoughts and desires, ambitions and minds. And soberingly, even our best deeds are actually compromised. Even our good works, our kindness. Human beings do wonderful things to other human beings. But as they do, it's often compromised by our pride. At least I'm doing something to help. Or compromised by our judgmentalism. How can those people over there not be bothered? Or compromised by our self-reliance. I can do this. I'm the one who did this. It's my strength and my ability that means I'm helping out. Or compromised by our self-justification. So the fact I'm doing this good thing makes up for ways I've not treated people well. Or I think biggest of all, just compromised by a lack of love for God that I'm doing it not for his glory, but mine. God sees all of that. The stuff that we would hide from others, he sees all of it. This is the Bible's teaching on sin. Theologians call it universal depravity. It's not that every human is as bad as we could be. It's not that every human action is bad. 
It's that every human action is tainted by sin. God, in his common grace, restrains evil in all of our lives, in society, in all sorts of ways. We're not as bad as we could be, praise God. But actually, no single thought, deed, desire is left untainted by this sin. And if we hear that, we find that painful to hear. I said this is a sober passage tonight. But actually, God's grief at it is even more significant. Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he'd made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. The Lord said, I'll blot out man who I've created from the face of the land. I'm sorry that I've made them, he said. This is not that God, kind of the world, the universe has, has kind of tumbled out of God's control. It's not that he had a plan A and that's gone horribly wrong and now he's scrabbling around for a plan B. Remember, he already told us the plan to bring the serpent crusher, the plan to bring Jesus. Jesus is still plan A. But nevertheless, while we wait for Jesus to come, God is not indifferent to the horror of humanity. I don't know if you ever watch the news. I actually find it quite hard watching the news. I don't know if you ever watch it and you just find yourself deeply grieved by what goes on. God sees everything and is deeply grieved. Next week, we'll look at the flood, which is God's response. But just before we close, and I'm so glad that the Bible does this, just before we close, we need to note the hope of a different story. See, just as we saw in chapter 5, that death had spread from Adam to all human beings... And now we've seen in chapter 6 that actually the same rebellion has spread to all human beings. That all of us, even at our heart level, are now compromised. Well, wonderfully, just as there was hope with Enoch for something better than the story of death, well, now there's hope with Noah for something better than the story of sin and judgment. Verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That word favor is grace, undesired, undeserved kindness. It is just another exception. Just like Enoch was an exception, here Noah is another exception. Like Enoch, he, uh, Noah walks with God. You get that in verse uh, 9. And like Enoch, Noah is a signpost that even against the darkest of backdrops, against the universal sin of humanity, the universal mortality that is to come. Even against that horror, there is hope. Hope for a different way. Hope for a way to life, life with God. Hope for a different destination. If you just look at chapter 5, verse 29, when Noah is born, we're actually told a clue that he is going to bring hope. Chapter 5, verse 29. They called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief, or literally rest, from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Noah is one who's going to bring rest, relief, a break from the curse. Salvation is going to come through Noah. Another signpost that God is not finished 
He has a plan to save. Now what's striking about Noah, unlike Enoch, is his hope is not just for him, but for his household, for his family. Noah, as we'll see next week, is one who doesn't just find a rescue for himself, but for others. And when Jesus comes along, as Hebrews has been teaching us, well, he provides a rescue for his family, for all who trust in him. All of us need it. No one is righteous, not even one of us. All of us need it. Death reigns. And Jesus came to provide it. We've seen tonight that this is the world we live in. Genesis keeps saying that. Genesis 1 and 2, this is the wonderful world we live in. The the blessing. So much life and abundance and beauty around us. A good world that God created. But we've been seeing since Genesis 3, this is the world of pain and death and sin. The world we've turned. But wonderfully, this is the world where God is committed to bring hope. Hope for rescue from death hope for grace to sinners it's not that Noah's any better we'll see that next week it's that God is gracious and in that we have real hope let me pray Our Father in heaven, it is sobering to hear your verdict on humanity who you made very good and whom we've turned very bad. We do recognize even in our own hearts, hearts that prioritize ourselves over others and especially over you. We thank you so much for hope. Thank you that Jesus came to die on the cross in our place that we might live for eternity, to pay the price that we deserved, that we might know your grace, your undeserved forgiveness. We pray tonight as we're unsettled by seeing your awareness of our sin, that we would find rest in the Lord Jesus and his completed work to forgive us on the cross. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.